Hi everyone, this is Christiana Best, host of Inside Out, Outside In. This podcast was framed by the themes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. It is important to note that the views shared on this podcast does not represent those of any college, university, or institution. My name is Christiana Best, and I'm your host for Inside Out, Outside In. This is a podcast about colleges and universities, and we're exploring issues that centers people of color primarily. And today's topic is on the Black graduate student's journey to, to the PhD. We have three folks here who have actually completed the PhD and are now in academia. So they're going to share their experience retrospectively. And then we have three young people who are currently in the PhD program. So you're going to talk about what it's like for you now. And hopefully we will end by sharing with folks who are thinking of joining the PhD program or becoming a professor. We would give them some ideas of how to navigate that space, which is primarily a white space. And so we're going to get started now. First, I would like to introduce the three members of the panel who are currently in a PhD program. I'm gonna start with Julian Rose. He's a PhD student at the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology at Emory University. And Pauline Batista, who's a third year PhD student at UConn School of Education. Hawati Curry, who's a third-year sociology graduate student at the University of Connecticut. Three faculty who are currently, um, who have completed their PhD and are currently in academia are Yvonne Patterson, who's an assistant professor at the, at Central Connecticut State University in the social work department. Karen McLean, who is currently a department chair and associate professor of social work at Western Connecticut State University. And Lucinda Canty, who is a certified nurse midwife and assistant professor of nursing at the University of mm-hmm. St. Joe's in West Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome. Thank you. So um, I thought we can start by um, you sharing a little bit about your academic journey as well as your professional career in the graduate program. I'm going to start with the three students who are currently in graduate school and then move on to the three that have completed it. So Julian, um, I'll start with you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm thinking about how far back to go. I think um, the full context of my educational journey is set within a context of educational inequity and me being born in Hartford, but uh, growing up in Farmington and going to school in Farmington, Connecticut, um, because my parents knew the school systems might be a little bit more um, supportive and well-resourced there. I went to the University of Connecticut. I studied biomedical engineering there. 
Um, I participated in the Health Careers Opportunities Programs at UConn Health, and I was a product of those sort of like minority-based enrichment programs um, and early exposure programs. Um, and I was planning on going to graduate school immediately after doing my undergrad career. And I gave my parents a heart attack and instead joined Teach for America. Uh, <laughs> it was a pretty big divergence in my plans. Um, but I had been recruiting for Teach for America for a little bit. So um, as an as an intern. So I just I did Teach for America in Hartford, Connecticut. For two years, I taught middle school science at Jamoki Academy. And while I was doing that, I was applying to graduate school. And, and thankfully, I got into Georgia, Georgia Tech's ME PhD program. So... I'm in my third year uh, there, and yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try this again. Hawalti? Yeah, that's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, as you speak about your career, just share whether or not you're the first in your family to be in graduate school or have a university career. Yeah. Okay. Um, so hi everyone. My name is Howell T. Um, I'm at the university of Connecticut right now in sociology department. Um, so the question is how did I like come to this point? Um, okay. So, um, I'm originally from Ethiopia and immigrated here as I, how I got to this point, I guess my, When I was in undergrad, I went to the University of Missouri. I was doing international relations and uh, peace studies. And at the time, I took some courses because it's a pretty interdisciplinary program. I took some courses in women and gender studies. And I met this um, really (laughs) bomb-ass woman named uh, Tola Pierce. And she's uh, a Nigerian-British scholar in medical sociology, and I took um, a class with her called uh, Women, Development, and Globalization. And what really set it off for me was she was saying a lot of the things that I was already thinking, you know, uh, just through my personal life and observation, but she had the words for the thoughts that I had and the feelings that I had. And I'm just a generally fairly passionate person. And so when, you know, I got that information from her and in her classes and the way that she taught it with a lot of emotion, I felt that, you know, this was the avenue that I wanted to take and not necessarily go into diplomacy because I was just, you know, never really satisfied with diplomacy. And so I um, got into, I did like the McNair Scholars Program, which is a a program for, you know, what is it? Like, it's like a diversity initiative, I would say, if I see heads shaking. So I think we all know what it is. But I did that program. And so I decided um, I was going to, I studied refugees um, uh, who are relocated or transplanted in um, rural Missouri uh, since I was there. And being East African, I was just really interested about the uh, transitive journey of refugees and immigrants and how they identified um, with their new descriptive as being Black and then also with the new way of life that they have to now live, not really understand what it means to be black and in public spaces. And so that was what really got me interested. And um, I went into sociology 
because um, most of uh, the theorists that I was reading were mainly sociologists and I liked the critical lens that they were bringing on and um, it felt like a good match for me. And so um, I applied and um, came to UConn and um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. Great. Thank you. So Pauline, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about your professional career as, as a PhD student and what inspired you to choose to go into a PhD program. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Pauline Batista. I, as I hear people talk, I just, you know, take notes because in addition to to being a black Latina, I also have severe ADHD, right? So that adds a special layer to that. Well, you know, I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I was born and raised there. My mom is a dark-skinned black lady from Brazil who was, she was very tough on me, my own, my sister and I, but she was also, you know, um, very aware of the privilege that my sister and I would be getting as light-skinned girls, right? And she kind of like socialized us to, for, to sort of be woke in that way and then to really stay tuned and pay attention. Um, and that's kind of how I grew up, you know, looking at my mother's experience as someone who was very in tune with what was happening, you know, um, also helping lots of trans black 90s when we had, you know, the HIV, I outbreak in the world she was there taking care of folks so for me that was very natural that kind of discourse um social justice oriented discourse was inside of my home growing up um I became you know I, was, <laughs> I hate saying that because that's so problematic right now that, that I, I became a stellar student right really the light-skinned black girl that everyone likes to give scholarships to but back then it was just all joy. Now I reflect a particular, I checked a few boxes for folks, right? And um, and I I only I always had really good experiences with education. I um, went to a Paulo Freire school. Paulo Freire, um, for those of you who do not know, he wrote a very important book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, he was one of the only few t uh, theorists that writes from. Um, the field directly, right? His experience with um, folks of color, rural, like in you know, rural workers in Brazil. So I went to a school um, in which all the teacher, most faculty, was all about um, you know that kind of radical work, pedagogy. Um, school was free, and it's so weird because up in the United States, the Alfredo's work and his model of education for the oppressed is entirely different. That could be a lecture of its own. <laughs> so, you know, education really was something that for me was part of my personal liberation process, along with family history and ancestrality, of course. Um, you know, in scholarship after scholarship, I got a full ride to attend um, school in Connecticut from Brazil. I um, in communication with a concentration in production and filmmaking to then get um, from UConn's El Institute of American Studies, where I wrote about the exploitation of um, black, black folks in the media and sort of trying to draw similarities across um, the U.S. and other parts of Latin America, right? I think that the thing that really <laughs> keeps black folks united, you know, across the diaspora is oppression, which is a shame. So I did that because, you know, I like media. To then go 
am right now, which is education. Because I was exposed to so much throughout um, my trajectory as a student that I joke around when I talk to kids and I introduce myself. I'm like, you know what? I am 30. Well, I'm turning 30 this year. I've been in school for 25. that I haven't left yet. So I'm in, 20, you know, 21st grade or something like that. To really highlight that, um, you know, to me, um, transformation can really come um, and, and happen in, um, you know, in the classroom. So that's what I believe in. And that's why I am in my finishing my third year of my PhD program at the NEAC School of Education, two, cl- two courses away from finishing my coursework to then prepare for my comps. And I also work as a program specialist at UConn's African American Culture Center. I have the blessing to work under Dr. Belina Price, um, a very famous person <laughs> who I adore, who keeps the standards real high <laughs> and helps me keep pushing um, in the absence of my mom. So that's where I am right now, and I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. Nice to have you. So I'm going to move to the three PhDs who are currently working in academia. They're currently teaching among other research projects that they're involved in. So I will start with Karen McLean. Then I would go to Lucinda Canty, followed by Yvonne Patterson. So the question is, share a little bit about who you are, your professional career, as well as what motivated you to move in this space. For me, um, just a little bit about me. Uh, I am from Hartford, born and raised in Hartford, still live in Hartford, probably will never leave Hartford. Um, but I believe that all of the talent in Hartford cannot leave Hartford. So very committed to being in Hartford for a number of reasons. I, this is where I am. Grew up in the Upper Albany uh, community. Grew up, my parents, I have one parent that was a, a migrant from South Carolina, and my father was an immigrant from Jamaica. So um, that proved to be a very colorful childhood, particularly when we look at communities and we look at the community of Hartford as it began to become more diverse with um, groups from um, other African descent countries. So, you know, I kind of grew up in the parochial schools. I was an only child and, you know, journey to UConn. My joke is UConn got all my money because all my three degrees came from UConn. There were different reasons. A lot of it was because of convenience. I uh, studied um, psychology, and the last semester of my undergraduate education, I had a, a course on child welfare and um, the law. So it was talking about child welfare and the legal rights and um, social work practice. So with those three combined, um, I decided at that point that I wanted to go um, into social work. However, I hadn't explored that yet. So um, as things evolved, I, you know, I've been in welfare. That was my um, area of work. So I worked in um, welfare for about 27 years. I worked for the city, Hartford, and then I worked for the state of Connecticut, the Department of Social Services. So well, I always said that welfare was married to me or I was married to welfare, but um, I, I was always um, intrigued by experiences that people had with the poor. So as a result of my experiences um, with that, I went in, I guess, became more intrigued with understanding 
the populations more intimately asking these questions, you know, around poverty. Um, why are there communities, why are communities of color always in poverty? So you start becoming intrigued with these really large questions. And I always knew that I had a thing for teaching. People always said that I had like a t student teacher style as I supervise MSW interns, um, because as you continue in social work practice, there's always that giving back. What I guess really sparked me into going into PhD land um, was two things. One, I met a bunch of um, young researchers who worked for the Institute for Community Practice, and they were young. One was a Latina, and then there was another one was someone who was just in the groundwork, in the trenches. They were both doing um, community practice, and they were doing all of this really exciting research around communities and trying to um, mobilize communities because for people who are not familiar with Hartford, Hartford is kind of polarized. So you have um, Latinos on one side, you have African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans on another side, and you have this other side of, of mixed communities. So um, politically, in terms of resources, was very polarized. So this particular research project that I was working on was looking at the ways in which residents can, A, do research, and then B, come together to create change in their communities. So I was so intrigued. I said, oh my God, look at these researchers. They were all younger than me. Um, and they were just out there, you know, um, kind of educating people in terms of collecting data, which we do all the time, but we don't really call it that. So after that experience, I was really thinking about it. And then um, I got the opportunity to teach um, at the community college. So a lot of people um, enter academia as an adjunct. So um, I um, taught at Capital Community College, which will always be um, a beloved place in my heart. And, you know, speaking with, again, with colleagues of color that were teaching and in my undergraduate and graduate experience, I think I had maybe two professors of color. And that's in the broad spectrum. I'm not just talking black, I'm talking of color. So that is a combination of black, Latino, two in like seven years of experience. So I said, what's up with that? So being um, introduced to scholars that look like me really inspired me to um, think about the program. And then I also have to give credit to um, the first black doctoral student and graduate of the program, who's Ann Patterson, who was Yvonne Patterson's sister, but she's going to tell you more about her story when it's her turn. She had a really good conversation with me. It's like, you can do this. We need to be the, the scholars. We need to be out here. We're from the trenches. So all of those things kind of wrapped up together. I said, well, let me put in my app. Let me do some research and see what happens. So, you know, I looked at a UConn because I was working full time. And I couldn't give up my full-time job because I had a mortgage and I had responsibilities. So I'm like, how in the world am I going to juggle school and work? But somehow I did it because it was just, it was important for me to do that. So then um, I entered the UConn um, School of Social Work in 2007 and um, didn't know what I was going to do my research on. I didn't know what my question was. I just knew I really wanted to teach because I really enjoy teaching. It was just something magical that happened when I entered the classroom for the first time. So, but eventually I got there um, and you will get there. If you're not sure exactly what you want to research on, it'll, you'll get there. You'll find out what that link is for you. So that's what led me to um, academia and to um, doing research 
And um, my dissertation topic was on um, hearing officers and my career journey. I became what's called a fair hearing officer. Nobody knew who that was. So that was the perfect research topic. And um, a fair hearing officer is someone who is kind of like the um, uh, adjudicator or judge um, between the clients in the welfare system and the welfare system. When there's actions taken on their case, everyone has due process. So you have the right to question the action. So as a hearing officer, you're listening to both sides and you then you determine um, if the department was correct in their action. So then I became a chief judge. That's what I called myself. So because nobody knew what I was doing, that's, that became my dissertation topic. And whether or not hearing officers felt like they were doing what they were supposed to do or what, what were they thinking about their jobs. Mm-hmm. So that's how um, I came into PhD land. And then after that, I pursued a teaching job that landed me in Danbury at um, Westcom. And, you know, I've been there since 2015. Um, I didn't think that at this point I would be the chair of the department, but that's sometimes that's how the winds, that's what happens. Opportunities present themselves. So you just have to, you have to take that leap. So thank you. Thank you very much. Lucinda. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Lucinda Canty. I am born in Hartford. I grew up in Windsor. I am first generation to go to college. And I did not, 10 years ago, if you would have said, you know, why don't you go get your PhD? I would have thought you were crazy. I didn't think it was anything that I would ever do. I never really had that encouragement growing up. Not because it's, it's kind of difficult to talk about because like my parents didn't go to college. You know, they were more into you find a job, you work, you know, you become a you know a good citizen, you pay your taxes. So I fell in love with nursing. That's where my uh, heart still lies. And I um, decided to go back to become a nurse midwife. And again, I didn't even think about getting my master's degree, but just one day in clinical saw a woman have her baby in the hallway and a nurse midwife deliver her baby, didn't even know the woman and deliver her baby. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I um, have been working as a nurse midwife for several years. And then a friend told me about a per diem job at University of St. Joseph. It was St. Joseph College at the time. And I was pregnant and I was like, I'm just going to do this one semester, have my baby and move on. And I just fell in love with teaching. It's just the environment, it's working with students, it's seeing students afraid at the beginning of the semester and then seeing that confidence. So I loved it. And again, I started out per diem and then um, some positions opened up for assistant professor and you have to have your PhD or be in a program. So because I just like gave birth, I just had my, um, my son, they allowed me to come on. And then a year later, I decided to apply to UConn. I went to their PhD program. But I was going to, to be honest, I was going to just have my baby, leave St. Joe's and then just live my life. But again, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I just felt like I belonged. And throughout my own um, education in nursing school, I probably can count maybe one person of color that instructed me in my midwifery school, one known to my clinical professors. So I just felt too that this was a space, these, an education that we needed to be because I didn't have the support. I didn't have anyone who looked like me. So I felt like, who do I go to if I need help? And I didn't have that. So I always said, if I go into education, that's who I want to be. I want that to be that role model to anyone. But I just know how it is to be a person of color, to be a black woman and feel like you don't belong and that you need help and you don't know where to go. 
And I always said, I don't want people to ever feel that way. So, so anyways, for me to continue to teach, I had to get my PhD and I have to say, and there's a 25 year um, gap between my master's degree and getting my PhD, which sounds crazy looking back, but to me, it also lets me know that it's never too late. You know, sometimes things happen in your life where you, or you feel like that's not for me. And then later on, you realize that I can do this. And that was another part of a reason too why I delayed kind of going back to school because I never really had someone say, oh, you can do this. And I think maybe I internalized a lot of things and felt like maybe I couldn't do it. So, but then I started to see people who were in, who were teaching and I was like, I think I'm smarter than them. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. So that was one, another thing that kind of motivated me. But when I had my first class, philosophy of nursing, and I looked at that syllabus and saw the assignments, I was like, what did I get myself into? But I decided just do one step at a time. And I just did, you know, I started out part-time and later became full-time. But I just felt like I belonged. And for me, it was like when I was looking at nursing research, no one was researching Black women. No one was really looking at the issues that were important to me. You know, so I felt like I need to be in this space so that I can do some research, generate my own knowledge, but also encourage others to do the same thing. And my area of specialty is maternal mortality. And when I first looked into that, just to let you know, I'm looking in the literature and the women were being blamed for dying. You know, they were overweight. They didn't get prenatal care. They were poor, like all these negative things. And that's why they're dying. But I always felt it had to be something more to that. And as I start to learn in my program, I learned how to really read and understand research. And I realized these studies weren't even talking to black women. They were looking at their chart. So how do you know what someone is going through if you don't talk to them and learn from them? And that's when I was like, you know, as black women, we have a lot of knowledge. We have a lot that we can contribute. We have the ability to find out what our issues are and solve them. So that was a motivating factor when I was getting my PhD. So in my dissertation, and I have to let you guys know, I just finished this past um, spring. I graduated <laughs> pre-COVID. <laughs> Pre-COVID, I just graduated. And my dissertation focused on the lived experience of women who suffer severe maternal morbidity. And I just have to say, again, doing my own research, I found out that first, they always say that Black women, we don't want to talk, but we want to talk. We want to talk about to people we trust and we want to talk about issues that are important to us. But I found out women were educated, that education didn't matter. You could still be at risk. It didn't matter where you lived. It, you know, you could be, and women who were like healthy still found themselves at risk of dying. But anyways, I had to do my own research to see that. And I even appreciate the women that were, that trusted me and let me learn from them because it really helped me. Now I changed the way that I even provide care or I even interact with my students. So I had a long road to my PhD, but I have to say it's the best thing that I ever did. Wonderful. One of the best things I ever did in my life. Thank so you. I recommend it for anyone. Thank you so much. So there are so many different uh, paths to the PhD program, right? Some people go directly, others make stops along the way, but eventually you get to the same goal. Okay. All right, Yvonne. Hello, everyone. So um, the, the way that I got to the PhD, it was a winding road for me. My parents um, migrated from Jamaica to the United States, to Hartford in particular, 
Um, I live, and incidentally, I lived one street away from um, Karen McLean. So I knew her growing up. And um, they migrated to Hartford, Connecticut in about the, we came here about the late 70s towards the early 80s. And so we'd been here a long time. But as growing up, my parents were like informal social workers. We had everybody and a mother in my house all the time. Like when people were were stranded, when people came from Jamaica and didn't have anywhere to go, our, our house was the spot to be. And, uh, you know, I joke with my sister that we never had our own room. And it was true because we, we were literally stepping over people a lot in our house. So I grew up in an environment where social justice was of particular importance. And then the fact that I came from Jamaica, the rural part of Jamaica, and Jamaica is a environment where um, social justice was always being talked about around me, you know, politics and people were dying over politics because it was so embedded in who they were, the DNA of um, Jamaicans, particularly like in the 70s and the 80s. So I had that spirit in me when I came into the world, I believe. And even when I came here in the United States, so much so that my my hero or the person that I wanted to become, I joke with my students all the time, was Marcus Garvey. I wanted to be the female Marcus Garvey. Like I thought he was the it, right? And and so I, I kind of embarked on that path from the time I went to elementary school. I saw the injustices that was in my community. I saw that, you know, there was a lot of things that were, were outside of my control. And then the experiences that I had made me more aware of oppression and made me want to do something about it. And of course, everyone was telling me, oh, you need to be a lawyer. You, you need to do this. You, you need to do that. And so when I graduated from high school, I, in fact, applied to law school. I implied, applied to UConn Law, but then I had an uncle who always told me that you should always have a plan B. If plan A doesn't work, you should have a plan B. And so the plan B was social work, right? So social work was the, the, the stepchild that I, I would select if, you know, I never got into um, law school. And lo and behold, I got waitlisted. And so social work is where I went. And I felt comfortable in that environment. I, I thought that there was a lot of things that needed to change. So I went into social work and I always joke, they, not even joke, but I'm very serious in terms of we, uh, you know, we as social workers, we need to change the profession for the better so that we're more aligned with what our rhetoric is. And so, you know, I, that, that became kind of my mission. And even when thinking about law school, I think people saw me as a teacher and so from UConn, I went to, you know, some, a, a teacher that I credit with saving my life in high school, brought me into the path of going to Howard University. So even before I got to UConn, that, that revolutionary spark was inside of me because of some of the things that I had learned at Howard University, and I brought that spirit with me. And so when I got to UConn, I finished up my political science degree because I couldn't finish up at Howard. And then I went on and finished my master's degree. And much like Dr. McLean here, you know, I was incestuous and kept going to my Ph.D., Right. And so we we, in fact, um, Dr. McLean and I ended up in the same class at UConn and we were the only two. Our cohort was three, I believe, at first, but then it just ended up being us two. 
And so we leaned into each other. And that if I had an advice to give students who are going into PhD programs, it's to find a good colleague that you can talk to, and especially in institutions that are not of color, where you will, you will need to talk, because I, I think every student kind of flips in and out of thinking about whether or not they belong. And so it's, it's critical that you have a confidant and someone that you can really talk to in those moments. And so going into UConn, I had the opportunity to teach and I found that I was very passionate about the issues. You know, I heard Paula Freire's, Freire's name and immediately that was some, one of some of the ideas that I, I, I gravitate towards. When you talk to some of my students, they, they always say that I'm very passionate about what I teach and I am. And so teaching is the, the realm that I think that I belong in. I come from um, a family that's well-educated. So my sister was the first Black PhD student to graduate from the Yukon School of Social Work. She graduated in the first cohort, and I think I was the sixth or the seventh cohort after her. And mm -hmm. I have a brother that has a master's degree. So education was always pushed in our family. So even though my parents never graduated from high school, that was one of the things that we were always told that was a must. And um, we continued along that line. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to know what, what are the joys of being in a PhD program? What are some of the barriers, particularly in navigating white spaces? And, and if you're able to talk to, to this, what were some of, what was the self-doubt? How did the self-doubt show up if it did for you at any time? So the joys, the barriers, that you had to negotiate in white spaces and also any self-doubt? Because I think most students that are considering getting into a PhD program or may have started a PhD program are often overwhelmed by the self-doubt and having to navigate so many barriers, right? So I'm going to just do tic-tac-toe. So I'm going to start with Julian. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I love this question. I. I think one of the, the major challenges um, of being a black PhD student is um, having to be great in a number of different capacities. Um, you have to be both emotionally strong um, because of the challenges that we're going to get to, um, but you also have to be great academically. And those things are in competition sometimes. You know, your imposter syndrome can actually impact your ability to, to perform, to study. So you have to be great with self-care as you are great um, in, in your studies. I think another, another thing is um, for people of color and black people in academic spaces, we often have the, the added and often uncompensated role of holding a lot of social justice work in our departments. 
So expanding diversity and inclusion so that your, your comrades, your people who are alongside you are comfortable, can succeed. It's something that we sometimes take onto ourselves to do, even if it's not paid, but because we know it's the right thing to do. Um, and my, like many people on this panel, um, my parents are from the Caribbean as well. I'm Jamaican and Anguilla. And they always, you know, told me to get up and stand up. You know, um, if you see something's wrong, you shouldn't just be silent about it. And I think that's a challenge because personally, my PhD journey might be easier if I wasn't also worried about, you know, the well-being of, of all the other black people and people of color, color in the department. Um, but because we're compassionate, because we care, that's like an added thing that, that we're working through. And there's like an, an emotional labor to doing that work and maybe having to fight the people who are supposed to be teaching you and respecting you and uplifting you. So that's, that's definitely a challenge. I think one of the joys I experienced, though, is, is the discovery. It is the camaraderie. With all challenges, if you're going through it with people, your, your bonds get stronger. And so I developed some really beautiful relationships as a result of some of the struggles that we're going through. And being able to impact health disparities as well has been really great. Because um, I know some of those things I'm studying in biomedical engineering are ultimately going to uh, help uh, Black people survive and have a better quality of life. So, yeah, that's, that's what I think of when I think of challenges and joy. Thank you. Lucinda? I think for me, one of the challenges was sometimes being in spaces and feeling like you're invisible. Like even if you're sitting in the front row, like people don't see you. And I think at first I was very intimidated by that. And I used to, because I everything I did focused on health disparities, because I knew when I started, like I found a road to maternal mortality, but I knew I wanted to focus on health disparities. And Black women are disproportionately impacted by like almost everything. And so I, you know, I was always afraid to kind of bring that up. And then um, I actually had a professor who really was the first person in my whole education this is my third year in, in school, working on my PhD, who created an environment where I felt safe talking about race. She was the first one. And she really just was like, you know, you have something to contribute just like anyone else. And I remember we had to make our own theory. And again, that self-doubt creeps in. I'm like, how do we make a theory? And do I have what it takes? And she told me to write down what I was thinking, you know, that I felt like I couldn't do it. And she said, take that paper and rip it up. And she's like, you can do it. You're already doing it. Just put it into writing. And that was like my motivator. But I think sometimes we feel like we're not good enough or our experience isn't good enough. And for me, it was learning that I am and that I have something to contribute. And you're in these spaces where, okay, if I talk about this, no one's going to understand it except for me. But, and then I changed to, I'm going to talk about this because they need to understand. If they're going to work with students that look like me, if they're going to be caring for patients that look like me, they need to understand. So after that, it's like now, it's like I, in my education, I found my voice. And I think it's realizing that and I like what Dr. Patterson said about you got to find someone that you can talk to. And I had a colleague where I worked, the only other African-American in my department. And she was my rock that when times I was when I was like, I want to give up. She was like, no, she was like, look who we work with. Don't give up. <laughs> so she was my strength. And you need that because sometimes that self-doubt could creep in and it could just take over. And I'm just glad that I have people that were like, no, 
you know, and it happens to all of us. So the people to be like, you know, I went through that too and look where I'm at, I did it. So it's like, you need that support. But I think the most important thing is realizing that you belong. Great, thank you. So how, how Walty? Okay. Yes. Um, so yeah, for me in terms of joys, um, I think I came in, I'll admit that I, I came in very, very confident. Um, I was really assured of like, you know, my ability to be critical and analyze and all these things. And I think one of the biggest barriers coming into the university was like this complete disillusion within the first week of what I expected from people who, you know, accepted me into the program. I was really discouraged about in the ways that they talked about or not talked about blackness or like this kind of performative activism that was everywhere. And being in sociology, I expected so much and, you know, having read their articles and um, they're so radical and it didn't show up in my, in, in the space that I was in. And so that was a huge um, barrier for me. And the self doubt then started coming in because, and I think like this kind of goes back to my childhood, if you will, where, yeah, I, I I grew up in, um, you know, I was raised by my mother and my, my dad who was really into education and he, you know, he had all his, his children go into, um, education in Ethiopia. I, on the other hand was awful (laughs) and I actually failed, um, in grade school a couple times. Um, but when I came to the United States, it was like really the place that gave me a lot of comfort, um, because I could escape, and just do school. And I was good at school when I was, when, you know, when I came to the U S and so when I got to this PhD department, um, or this level, I guess I was just, I, I, I tended to kind of gaslight my thoughts about, um, what needed to be said and what needed to be done because there wasn't any affirmation about, the things I wanted to study, if that makes sense. Uh, so I wanted to study blackness. I wanted to study the ways that we like depict, you know, African women and Ethiopian women particularly, but no one wanted to talk about it. And I got really, again, just disillusioned the fact that people didn't know anything about um, the continent, you know, and black Africans. And so I guess the barriers and self-doubt kind of came together if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, kind of like what Pauline, uh, was saying, like I myself have, uh, you know, a, a, a neurological disability, if you will, where, um, kind of like what Julian was saying, where, because you are, you know, existing as a black scholar in this non-black environment, your emotions and the ways that you handle your disability is not about you being disabled rather it's because you are black and incompetent which is just a lot of trauma that you have to deal with and and you can't explain it right because people like it just becomes like a, a snowball effect of you kind of perpetuating this idea that they have of you as a black woman who is also now who's crazy or whatever um so it's it's hard. (laughs) 
it's all, it's all pretty hard. Um, but the joys I think, uh, for me is that I, have really invested more about identifying who I am and how I fit in this world and really taking joy in the fact that I am consistently adamant about what it is I want to do typically. So though I don't have the, you know, consistent affirmation about the things that I want to study, I myself, like the, it's kind of a stubbornness in me that it's like, no, like this is where we're going. This is where we're heading. This is what I want to look at. And honestly, the way that, you know, I am treated and the way that I'm allowed to behave in this environment just shows me that I, like, I can only really trust myself right now. And so like the joys for me is like, I, I've done a lot of growth in my, in my own identity as a black woman because of how, you know, because of all these messages I keep receiving about who I am. So. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Dr. Patterson. So um, joys and some challenges that I found in my PhD program. Well, the absolute joy, and I'm not just saying this because she's here, was um, Karen McLean for me. She was my safe haven. Like we, um, I always talk about this one um, incident that we had in a program where her and I was, we were in a class by ourselves with um, a white faculty member and he decided to probe us in terms of our hair texture and he was just asking questions that traumatized me. I felt as though I was being raped in a sense and I, and I, um, got an opportunity and he just focused in on what blackness meant for him, people's hair extensions. And it it was, it was traumatizing. And it was so traumatizing for me that I cried and there was a power imbalance between us because we were two black women in a class with this person who had our career in his hand. And so we had nothing but to comply to some of the questions that he was asking but um, had it not been for her, I might have been locked up that day because I was angry. <laughs> I was angry. And I was so angry. It, I was tearful. And I had to check in with her. And I said, that was racist, right? Wasn't that racist? Because then they got you thinking that maybe you're paranoid. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and so I was so happy that I had her. We were a cohort of two, and we had shared some of the same experiences, and I could tap into her to kind of check myself, and she checked me sometimes, and then sometimes I checked her, you know, and so if I didn't have her with me, the journey would have been so much harder. So that is my absolute joy that I had going through that program was I was fortunate to have somebody that looked like me, that understood the things that I understood and in the same ways that I did and that could support me and I could support as well. And, you know, it was we lived a street across from each other growing up, but I never knew her. She went to school with my sister and we've become good friends. Um, wow, this is so... It's such a huge, you know, relief. It's. It, I feel like this is a very loving environment, and I really needed to express that for one, for one thing. It's really, it's problematic that that's the pattern, but it's also comforting to hear that folks have similar experiences. So when I came into this program, 
I came from, all right, um, I spent a year in Brazil. I've been living in Connecticut for 10 years, but I did spend a year in Brazil between 2000 and, well, I graduated with my master's in 2016, went to Brazil, and then came back 2017. So I was in Brazil, I was doing production, like production related work for, for TV and things like that. So when I came back into this um, academic environment, I was very hopeful and I was very happy that I made it into the program, especially because people are like, oh, the New York school at UConn is really great. I mean, really, they're amazing. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's see. So my advisor was someone who I love, 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 love to this very day. She's no longer at UConn, but, um, and, and she was very helpful, very instrumental in kind of like, you know, helping me out. I would say that my first year, especially my first semester in graduate school, was not very happy. I just literally had several communication issues with folks that were critical to my career at that point. They're all white. And it was so funny because, like, we're both speaking English, right? I do speak three languages. You know, we were both speaking English, but I couldn't really understand them. And they could not understand me. And I started to question myself. I'm like, really? Like, am I really this dumb? Am I really this crazy? Mm-hmm. One faculty member, in fact, this person, they were like, well, you know, I used to be good friends with Maya Angelou and the family. And Maya Angelou was a high-maintenance diva and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not here. <laughs> I'm not here for <laughs> really that's your way to connect with me because you know i'm black okay whatever you know what i'm saying so those were the things like really the micro and then that's when i really learned the mini regressions and and then i started it wasn't really about me it was mostly so about them they needed to do better you know and now i can say that um now i'm at a place in which I, you know, yeah, I didn't, I did not appreciate my first year as a PhD. Um, it was not until I found community in other spaces at UConn, particularly the African American Cultural Center, that my life really changed. And I became uh, like 360. I became a different person. Um, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. I'm, you know, I would say that, yeah, so the not so positive aspects. It's just really like the sort of like lack of communication, historical communication problems, right? But that we learned that sort of stems from a place of institutional racism. That like the downside, I would say that the positives are definitely like, you know, finding community and feeling empowered and really like rising. You're like, okay, you may not understand me if I say this in this particular way, however... Um, this is why you don't understand me, you know, like being able to recognize growth, being able to recognize how community has a really strong role in, in just, you know, personal growth. That to me is amazing. Um, and, and being able to talk to other students who look like you about it and younger folks who are coming, right. At the NEAC school, their teachers, their black teachers who are, you know, now studying to be teachers. And of course, because I work at a cultural center, they come to us and talking to them and exchanging experiences and kind of like being able to, you know, re- reassure them and like really let them know that, you know, they're loved and that there's um, room for them and they need to really keep going. That for me is really like worth my whole for rough, rough first year. 
Um, so yeah, I think I'm just gonna keep it at that. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Dr. McLean. Well, uh, Dr. Patterson stole all of my lines, but it definitely was a joy um, and still is a joy because we still maintain relationship, camaraderie. So the benefit of really having that someone who can be not only your anchor in undergraduate, but even in your professional life, who can be that anchor that person who, and, and sometimes that comes from sources that you may or may not realize. For me, I take it for granted because we were part of a cohort of two, which I joke about, we call it the hort because it was only two of us. Um, so <laughs> I take it for granted because she was there that, oh, everybody's had, has this support person. Everybody has this rock. You know, we always joke that we're induct. She's deductive because she's like this big theorist and I'm inductive. I have to see it and then connect the theory with it. So just even even having that kind of scientific jargon between each other that you develop as you become more scholarly to kind of see the yang and the yang, as people typically call it. But um, definitely um, having her there um, to check in, to connect with you know, to kind of cry on your, you know, the benefits of having somebody where you are doing homework at four o'clock in the morning. This to me, this is just such a valuable takeaway. We would be on the phone and, you know, this is, I think we had both had landlines or whatever. We would t call each other up on the phone and we'd be on the speaker phone and we would be working and we may not be saying anything until maybe it's an hour later. Um, what did you think about so-and-so and such and such? Da, 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 da. And the phone line is open. We don't necessarily have to communicate, but we are connected. So it was just amazing. Like, like that's that stuff I miss, you know, just having the line open. So it's a different way of thinking about communicating. So thinking of ways to think outside of the box to be connected. You don't have to be on the phone talking. You're just there, even though we are separate. Obviously, today you have the technology of Zoom and those kind of um, mediums. So just that sisterhood. We have another colleague who is another woman of color who we're, we're actually doing scholarship with now, which is a promise that we committed to ourselves years ago, but life always gets in the way. So I don't know if it's because of COVID. I don't know if it's because we're all going up for tenure soon. Man, okay, it's time to get some stuff going. So the, utilizing those networks to, 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 to kind of keep you scholarly because it's hard when you begin to juggle real life and your family and your commitment city, you also, also also want you to publish. So it's great when you want to do it, but then when you have to do it, it takes on a completely different lens when it's it's mandated. So right. having that, you know, kind of support was, you know, invaluable to uh, my experience. And another thing, um, the downside, obviously, are were the microaggressions. Um, professors, the thing that would always happen is because we were both in the same cohort, People would see me and call me Yvonne and call her Karen. So I'm like, you're not even looking at us. <laughs> you're not even looking at us. I mean, we're both chocolatey and gorgeous and all that, but you're not even looking at us. All you see is brown. Oh, Yvonne. Like, but we're, you know, we're different. So it was just like, wow. So, you know, like if we needed to use it to our advantage, okay, just walk by. Cause she's she going to think you Yvonne anyway. Cause I got to go here. <laughs> to your advantage. Okay, she's going to think it's Yvonne anyway. Which is, it's not a good a good thing, to, but it, I mean, these are the kind of jokes that we, this is the kind of stuff. You got to have humor. 
the humor will get you also get you through that kind of stuff. But people not even really looking at you. It was like, wow. Wow. And um, I, I know we got to wrap up, but uh, definitely the other, um, I, I don't know, we haven't gotten it, but the, the ability to ask for help. We all think we can do it. The, you got to learn to humble yourself. You have to. You cannot do this by yourself. You have to learn to ask for help or when help is given to take it. But sometimes we get very suspicious or suspect because of where it might be coming from, what the intentions are. You got to think about it strategically. Is this going to get me where I need to go? 